0: Well, good morning, church. If, uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you, please, to open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint, Gideon. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 58. And in these verses, verses 35 through 58 of 2 Corinthians 15 you find the most in-depth and sustained discussion in the Bible about the resurrection of our bodies. And though, we, uh, though we're not continuing in the book of Revelation this morning, obviously, uh, this is certainly an appropriate subject to take up. You, you could see it as, a, as an appendix onto chapters 21.9 through 22.5 of Revelation. What will our bodies be like in this heavenly world? And in what we're about to read, just as a a disclaimer, when Paul calls the Corinthians foolish for asking with what kind of body are they raised, he isn't rebuking them for asking the question. The motive behind the question was to discredit the resurrection of the body. And you see this back in verse 12 of the same chapter where Paul shows he is answering the Corinthian church's dispute over the reality of a bodily resurrection. Some of the Corinthian church members didn't believe that it would happen. There's a spiritual resurrection, not a bodily resurrection. And that should come as no surprise if you know anything about Greek history, because the Greek in that world, the Greek world, the common way of looking at the physical and the spiritual was that physical is bad and the spiritual is good. Physical is inherently corrupt, the physical is irredeemable, and the spiritual is incorruptible. And so when a Greek looked forward to the afterlife, he was looking forward to a, an ethereal existence, kind of like Casper the Ghost. No body, no flesh, no material, just spirit in a spiritual world. And this kind of thinking influenced the Corinthian church, and they began to believe the same. The life to come is going to be wholly spiritual. that's what they believed. They didn't deny an afterlife, but they did deny the physicality of it and the resurrection of a physical body. Now, do you think this way today? Do people think this way? Well, of course they do. And especially in the church, they do. And though you probably wouldn't find anybody who would say, you know, that there is no bodily resurrection. People aren't disputing that. But they often fall into the same trap of thinking physical, material world is bad and irredeemable and the spiritual world is good. Right? Because when we think of an afterlife, often it's an immaterial place. We float around in the clouds and it's entirely spiritual. Uh, it must be because obviously the material world is bad. But that's just thinking about eternity through the lens of the Greeks. It's not how the Jews thought about the world and it's decidedly unchristian. Why is it unchristian? Well, if you remember... In the beginning, God made the world, and the world was a physical, material world, and the world was what? Good. That means that the body that you have, the ground under your feet, the birds and the fish and the beasts of the field and the trees and the rocks, all of it was created good. And they were created to give glory to God. God said, a physical creation will give me glory. That's why He made it. And over and over in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, we're told not to glorify God with our spirits or with our hearts, but we're told to glorify God with our bodies. The problem is that here... In this fallen world, we're always falling short of glorifying God with our bodies, and it shows. It shows in our flesh, it shows in our aging, it shows in everything. But in the life to come, we will be able to perfectly glorify God with our flesh, with our bodies, because they will be recreated and resurrected to be fitting vessels for the glory of God. So let's read our passage this morning, First Corinthians 15. Starting in verse 35 and going on to the end of the chapter, what does the Bible say about the bodily resurrection? But some will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, the man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that you would engrave the truths of this word on our hearts with the pen of iron. Lord, that we would never forget a resurrection awaits all of those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, this world is not all that there is. It seems that way. It's not. You would have told us if it were otherwise. And so, Lord, I pray that You would help us to take our eyes off of earthly things and fix them on heavenly realities and future promises so that we would be fueled to live the Christian life appropriately. Let us store up our treasures in heaven and not here where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lord, I pray that you would help me to preach and help us to hear. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. But nothing is impossible for you. And so we ask for your help. We ask for your provision. We ask for your understanding this morning that we would grow, that we would be more like Christ and less like ourselves. We thank you that we can come to you and approach you. We thank you for your care for us, your guiding us. And so we commit ourselves and our time and our hearts and our minds and our bodies to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. We live in an age. Held captive by lies. Did you know that? You better know that if you want to make it. Lies and falsehoods dominate the thinking of people in our culture. They just, they just do. It's just a, a fact. People live by lies lies about what it means to be human. Lies about nature. Lies about God. Lies about good. Lies about what is evil. Lies about everything. I mean, you you, you may have not realized this before, but you live in a culture where the vast majority of people are building their lives on lies. And they don't just build their lives on them. They preach them constantly and they celebrate them ceaselessly. You hear sermons in their internet ads and in the media. You see it on billboards. You hear it from the mouths of coworkers and friends and acquaintances. These lies are advertised constantly, reinforcing their message, trying to get you to believe them. And of course, we don't have time to go over all of them. But one of those lies, one that we're prone, very prone, to be captured and taken in by, and I believe many have unknowingly bought into, is that we, as human beings, we ought to be healthy, and well, and whole. Right? We ought to be energetic and feeling good and have little pain. If it's not the case, and if you ever feel bad or, or sore or tired, well then something is wrong. And by and large, that's what the world believes, isn't it? We ought to be healthy. We ought to never experience pain. We ought to never be sad. If your body aches, something is abnormal. Something is wrong. And listen, before we get any any further, I don't mean don't go and see a doctor. You maybe should see a doctor if something sudden or acute happens to you. But I'm talking about the run of the mill. Aches and pains and sadness and tiredness. All of those things, they're not abnormal. And they don't mean that something is uniquely wrong with you. Do you know what it means? Sickness and pains and soreness and tiredness. It means exactly what the Bible says. Our bodies are cursed. Our bodies are cursed. We, even sometimes as Christians, especially in the 21st century, forget that we live in a fallen world with bodies that are fallen. You realize that? We have all kinds of evidence of this curse personal evidence. But have you come to the right conclusions that this flesh is cursed and eventually your body will turn against you? It's going to become your enemy and it will hurt to do anything. It's just a fact of life in this fallen place. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't take care of your bodies. No, you you should within reason because God has given you your body. But don't buy into the the obsession in the world that worships health and idolizes well-being. Don't buy into the idea that, well, I should always feel good all the time, and if I don't, something is wrong. I mean, you could do everything right health-wise and still be tired or exhausted or even just sad. You can do everything right and still develop arthritis in your hands and lose your memory and have your joints ache. Your body will not live forever. It won't. You have 8 billion evidences of this in the world. It wears out. It wears down. That's just how things are in a fallen world under the curse of sin. I mean, the devil was right when he told Job, or told God. You remember, he says, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch talking about Job, touch his bones and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. Touch a man's body, bring him pain, mess with his health, and you'll see what he really believes. And very often when our health is prodded and poked and deflated, we discover that we have spent more time worshiping at the altar of good health than, than maybe we realized. Might have overestimated how much stock we put in it. And so when our health suffers, our little idol suffers. And you know what we do? We begin to get disheartened, and we begin to get even angry at God. You know, I just read a book. Uh, I read it on, on good recommendation, good mood, bad mood. An excellent little book on, on, uh, on Christians and, and how they should face sadness and, and uh, suffering and depression. And in it, the author makes a point that because we often idolize our health and well-being... We become sad and even depressed when it's taken away. And not without reason. Who would like to lose their health? But he goes on to say, ultimately what's happened in that situation is that God has said no to our desire for health here. We know he's promised it for later, but for today he has said no. And in that moment we have to decide... Am I going to worship God who is doing me good even by denying me the health that I want? Or am I going to be angry and disappointed and grumble because I value my health more than I value glorifying Him through my pain? And that's a decision many of us face, and if you aren't facing it today, you will. And my prayer is that you'd be able to be like Paul who worshiped God in spite of the thorn in His flesh, or like Peter who rejoiced even when Jesus told him, Peter, this is how you're going to die for My glory. And he rejoiced. The only way to live like that is to love God more than health, more than the body, more than freedom from pain, more than life itself. Now that would be a tall order if this life is all that we had. But this life, listen, is not all that we have. And even though Paul had a miserable thorn in his flesh, whatever it was, guess what? He doesn't have it anymore. And even though Peter died to the glory of God, today he is alive. And even though you and all of us We experience the destruction of our bodies, of our flesh. It isn't going to last. It's the opposite of the way the world thinks about it, right? They have their health and beauty now, today, and it quickly fades, and once it's gone, it's gone for good. There's nothing healthy and nothing beautiful and nothing well in hell. There's just not. We, as believers, experience health and beauty in a limited, not a full way, in a limited way. Briefly, we lose it as we grow older and gain it back a hundredfold for all eternity. The pain you experience is only temporary. It's short-lived. There is a resurrection a, a resurrection of our bodies promised to all of those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. And there is a lot in the verses we just read, so I I want to limit our attention as we go through them to just what it says about the nature of this resurrected body. And the first thing we see is that these bodies are seeds of what is to come. Now if you weren't familiar with seeds or with gardening, and you knew very little about it, you would probably find it hard to believe that an oak tree begins as something as small as an acorn. How in the world, you'd wonder, could a tree come from something like that? It doesn't look like a tree at all. But plant it in the ground, water it, wait a little while, and sure enough, it does. And in fact, every oak tree began as an acorn. And God designed it to work this way so that we would learn something about the life to come. The body is the seed, and when it's planted in the earth and then raised though you will still be you you will be changed into something glorious or even just take yourself your own body you haven't always looked the way you do today have you you don't especially when you were first born there's some newborns here now and i know the parents look at them and they wonder what will they look like when they grow up you don't know you know Every one of us was this newborn at one time. You were smaller, your proportions were all different, your mind wasn't developed, you thought differently, but guess what? You were you the whole time. You can't look back uh, on your life and say, well, this is when I became me. No, you were you from the very start. You still have the same, uh, even from infancy to old age, even though you changed drastically, you still have the same characteristics, the same personality, the same divinely embedded elements that make you you you're still the same person even though your body changes a lot even the cells in your body almost all of them have have replaced themselves most of the cells that make up your body do this and it's like thesis ship you ever heard of that imagine a boat where it had every rotting plank replaced by new ones and eventually every original piece of wood in the boat is replaced and when they are is it still the same boat Well, I don't know about the boat, but I do know about us. We are the same. Because even though our bodies change, our spirits are from God. And they do not. And just as the seed carries the the DNA of the tree, so the body carries the soul that will animate the body to come. Your soul is immortal. That, That thinking, feeling part of you that is united with the flesh somehow transcends the flesh... It will grow into something. And your body, presently, it's the seed that holds it. And what you will be is very different from what you are now. But that difference, listen, it's not in visual appearance. It's not in how we look. We're going we got to get caught up in this sometimes. That's usually the first question people ask. Will I look the same? Will I be able to recognize myself? What? I look like will be recognizable. And so will you. Because the difference is not in appearance. The difference is we're told, well, we're told what they will be in verses 42 through 45. And the first difference is that your body will be imperishable. Spend some time on Imperishable. Later, we're told the mortal will put on immortality. Here, the the container for your soul, what you're sitting in the chair right now with, the body you have, it is a perishable good. It's not salvageable. It doesn't stop people from trying to salvage it. They get all kinds of surgeries, injections, chemical treatments. They all make up magic, even digital touch-ups. And you know what? In the 21st century, we've gotten pretty good at it, right? You can actually look younger for longer, but not for much longer. And eventually, people begin to look like they're trying to preserve a perishable good. <laughs> as that's exactly what they're doing. I mean, every one of us, everyone who has ever lived... Your body has an expiration date. And the closer you get to that expiration date, the more obvious it becomes. The body breaks down, it begins to degrade, it goes the way of everything in this fallen world. That has a dramatic effect on how we think about the flesh. let Let me just put that into perspective. How do you think about the future? What does your future look like concerning your body? Now I don't mean 10 years from now or 20 years from now, 50 years from now for some of you, 20 maybe for some of you. (laughs) Well, if you're realistic, I mean, it could be tomorrow for some of you. You don't know. If you're being realistic, you know that you're not going to have the strength then that you do today. You will become a weakling. you just will, right? You might not even be able to dress yourself. Any physical beauty that you have today will be long gone. Your joints will fail you. You won't be able to move without pain. You have injuries that will get progressively worse. Right? This shoulder, I dislocated it 10 years ago. I can lift it this high. That's it. And it's not going to get progressively better. It's going to get progressively worse. You, know, you, you, you can't unripen a, a banana. You can't unbruise an apple. You can't remoisten bread that's gone stale. We don't think that way about our bodies, but it is that way. We are perishable. Our bodies expire. That's, that's why people don't think about the future. It's painful, isn't it? It's hard knowing you're under a curse you can't escape from that will eventually kill you and not only kill you but grind you to dust along the way. And so people deny it. They ignore the obvious fact that they are perishing The body's wearing out and breaking down. And if this life is all you have, then you lose everything. But Christian, listen, this life is not all that you have. It's not even the beginning of all that you have. But because when this body that you have, it's sown into the ground, it's not like buried trash. You know, it's not just going back to the earth, never to be seen again. It's like a planted seed. I I forget what it was. And they said, they said, cemeteries are the gardens of the godly just waiting to sprout. And they were right. We're not destined for destruction, but we are destined for glory, even our bodies. You know, I I tried to grow an avocado tree before from a seed. And I just started again at the encouragement of my mother-in-law. And so I have a little seed container and I check on it from time to time to see if they're starting to grow. And you know what I'm feeling when I do? When I go and I look? Anticipation. I want to see what the seed will become. I want to see life begin to come out of these apparently dead seeds. And, brothers and sisters, when when we look at our mortal flesh and our mortality, we shouldn't look at ourselves with fear or trepidation. We should look at ourselves with anticipation because the imperishable is coming. Yeah, there's a hiccup before you get there, but the, perishable, the imperishable is coming. And we will be given new bodies that will not degrade over time, nor will they ever need to get better because they will constantly maintain the fullest level of health and vitality all the time. I mean, it's hard to imagine today, isn't it? You will never know pain again. Never. Never. And if you're wounded, if you can be wounded, I don't know, but if you could get cuts or scrapes or splinters in the new earth, they would heal immediately with no complications. And your joints aren't going to wear out and your bones aren't going to hurt and you're never going to feel bad again. And every marker of your mortality here will give way to everlasting life day by day as you wake up, if you even need to sleep. You will be more renewed, more refreshed, and more ready to meet the day than the day before with no prospect, no future prospect of your body ever failing you or growing fatigued or tired ever again. Imperishable. That's something to look forward to. Second, We're sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. These bodies are dishonorable in almost every way, aren't they? And I don't mean unclean or anything like that. Dishonor isn't contrasted with cleanness or even honorableness. It's contrasted here with glory. It's the opposite of glory. And the point is, is that these bodies are not fitting vessels for glorifying God eternally. The flesh that we now have, the tent that we reside in, it can do nothing but dishonor God. Even at our very best. And so, apart from Christ cleansing our every thought and word and action that we undertake, we can only dishonor God. I mean, that's why He came, right? He came so that we could honor God and be saved and be cleaned. All of these things. But in the world to come your body will do nothing but glorify the Lord God always. Everything that you do, everything you put your hand to will be done to His glory perfectly. Never a wrong motive, sneaking in again. And the thoughts that you have and the works that you do will genuinely, without need of intercession or cleansing, be glorifying to God. Everything you do, I mean, right now, that's not the case. We live in dishonorable flesh. That's what it's called. Why? Because it pollutes everything that we do. It's like our hands are always dirty. And whatever we touch, no matter how great it is, how wonderful and worthy it is, as soon as we touch it, we make it dirty too. Or like an example I heard before, if you had a a leper with, with oozing sores, you could take the finest suit in the whole country. And you dress the leper in it, but it wouldn't take five minutes before the the corruption and the fluids from his body begin to seep in and spread through the clothes and ruin them. I mean, it, it was the finest suit, but who would want to wear it after it was filled with the pus and blood of this disease? It was a really fine suit. What happened when you put it on the man? Now it's worthless to be burned. Our bodies are like that. They defile everything we come into contact with. They are dishonorable. And you know that. You feel that. But in the life to come, they will be glorious. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that they're just going to be clean and undefiled. But the works that you do will actually be made better and improved on by your doing them. They will not be made worse. You say, how can they be made better? Well, it would be taking the same, like taking the same fine suit and putting it on, I don't know, putting it on King Charles, right? You put it on him, as soon as he wore it, what would happen? The suit would become more valuable, wouldn't it? It'd be the suit that the king wore and he wouldn't have to do anything special with it. He wouldn't have to go anywhere in it. He wouldn't have to alter it. He would just need to put it on. And by virtue of putting it on, the suit, which was fine to begin with, would be greatly enhanced, but on the life to come, that's what our glorified bodies will do. They will not dishonor, but glorify God in everything we put our hands to. Thirdly, we're sown in weakness and raised in power. What does weakness mean? It's the weakness of the flesh. And not the weakness that gives in to temptation, but the weakness of the body itself. We are fragile creatures. Again, we don't like to think that way, but we are. I mean, we're not strong. Bacteria can get into a cut and we're gone. Eat the wrong thing, step into the road at the wrong time, trip in the wrong place, and that's it. You know, one of the reasons why accidents are so traumatic is because of the weakness of our bodies. But in the life to come, there will be no weakness but power. And primarily it has to do with ability, limits. There'll be zero limits. And and look, I, I don't know what that means, I don't know if it means skydiving without a parachute or scuba diving without an air tank withstanding the, the titanic levels of pressure. But I do know that what could ever, what, whatever could be considered weakness here, the weakness of our flesh, there, it's not going to be a problem. The bodies that we will receive are not going to inherit that weakness. They will be powerful and compared to the flesh today near limitless. And the reason I say this is because of the fourth thing we see here, and I'll point it out when we get there, but fourthly and most importantly, what really informs all of the other changes is that what is sown is a natural body and what is raised is a spiritual body. We don't have spiritual bodies today. Today, the body and the spirit are in some ways estranged. that They're not allies. They're enemies. That's why Paul says, I crucify the flesh every day. This is why he laments in Romans 7, Who will deliver me from this body of death? There is animosity and warfare in every believer between the flesh and the spirit. But in the resurrection, our bodies will be spiritual. Bodies that will not only be able to perceive a spiritual place, as being, be aware of it, but they will be part of it and inseparable from it. And, and, and this, this is where Adam and Eve are excelled. Adam, from whom your present flesh is descended, was made from the dust. He was earthly. He was, what the Bible says, natural. All the flesh in this world, human flesh, has its origin with him. We're all descendants of that fallen race. But some are saved from this and made children of God in Christ. And Christ was not made from the dust, but was created in the womb by the Spirit, And not only are we created that way, but He was raised by the Spirit. And in Him, we will become spirit body beings. It says, not symbolically, we will have bodies like His. In the same way this natural body resembles the first Adam, so our resurrection bodies will resemble the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ. That's verse 49. What do we know about His resurrection body? Not much, but not nothing either. All we know is from what we see in the resurrection of Christ, and that informs what we will become. He is presented in the resurrection accounts in the Gospels and in Acts as having both spiritual and physical attributes. As a spiritual being, he displays many spiritual characteristics, characteristics you sometimes see with the angels. He was able, apparently, to pass through walls and locked doors. Normal, normal physical limitations do not seem to apply to him. When, we, when he meets the two men on the road to Emmaus, he conceals his identity like angels often did. Then he reveals himself at the end, and when he does, he vanishes either to a new place or a spiritual world. It becomes invisible. But he did what only a spirit could do. And especially as to point three, I told you I'd point this out, As to how we're raised in power, later on when he appears to the 11 remaining apostles, he shows them mortal wounds in his body, in his hands, and especially in his side. And yet, he lived. Finally, he ascended to heaven, to the spiritual realm. Yet, by his own testimony in Luke 24, 39, he was not a spirit he had a physical body, and so he was touchable, he was tangible, he could be seen. He wasn't like a ghost, he was physically there. He ate food, probably didn't need to, but he did. His feet touched the ground and he walked around. In fact, the emphasis in the New Testament, especially in the resurrection accounts in the Gospels, is that Jesus' body is what was raised. And so what do we learn about these spiritual bodies? Well, for one, they are our bodies. They are our flesh and bone like you have right now, but they are not bound and limited like your bodies are. Presumably, we'll have the ability to transport ourselves instantly from place to place. Now, that doesn't seem like much, but it's a big deal. You know, one of our greatest causes for grief in the world right now is separation, isn't it? When a husband goes away on business, he's gone for days. In the ancient world, it would have been much longer, months, maybe even years. Or, if a a soldier is deployed, he, he can't come home at the end of his shift. There are physical limitations. And even though they won't really matter that much in a world where everyone will live forever, the intimacy that we will have there will not be broken by distance. Distance is not going to be a hindrance to anybody anymore. And certainly, with Christ as our example, What else about these spiritual bodies? We will be alive, but not in the same way we are today. Our life will not be tied to the biological functioning of our bodies, but our life will be tied to and provided by the power of the Spirit of God. You say, what do you mean? Just take a look at the wounded side of the Lord. A spear had pierced through his heart. Now, I don't know about you... But if you took a spear and stabbed me into the heart, I'm not going to be walking around talking to people. I'm going to die. And yet here is the Lord Jesus, resurrection body, His heart pierced along with His hands, and yet He is alive and He's not threatened by this mortal wound whatsoever. And so you see in the life to come, in this place, we will not draw our life from flesh and blood, but from the Spirit. And things that could kill you today won't pose a threat. This is why point three, we won't be fragile any longer. Now well, I don't know what that means, but I, I know it means at least this much. And so your resurrection body, it'll be recognizable, it will be wonderful, it will be familiar, and unlike anything you have ever seen before. Lastly, there will be no death. No death in this place. The body will not die anymore. And and not only will it not die, it will experience nothing that even hints of death. Nothing. You will have a body that is immortal. What does that mean? It means you will not be able to die. Nor will you be afflicted by anything deathly you ever wondered why the loss of health and and aging, why it troubles people so much? It troubles people because the loss of health, it's not merely just the losing of the ability to, to do things. It's not merely the loss of health. It's more than that. It's progress towards death. When your body fails you, it fails you because you are dying. You ever thought of that? Right now. At this moment, everybody in this room, it doesn't matter how old they are, are dying, not living. Your body is moving towards more and more and more death, not life. And the reason that's also troubling, it's a very simple answer. You were not made to die. God did not make men and women and life to perish he made it to flourish he didn't create us to be sick he created us to be healthy we lose it because we're cursed but he created us originally to be well and this means that death is not a natural part of life i hate that saying All right you know, death is just a part of life get used to it that's not true if you ever hear it Deny it. Don't buy into that lie. Because it's not the way that God made things to be. That's why death is called an enemy to be defeated, not just a part of life to be accepted. That's why sickness is painful and heartbreaking. And that's why it's hard to watch the ones you love grow old. That's why death is frightening. God made you for life. God is life. And He is the opposite of everything that is... Lethal. Death and sickness and aging is the opposite of everything you were designed to be or experience. And when you experience it, you know this. You know when you see it. This, these are not, this is not the way things were meant to be. Someone comes up and says, oh, it's just natural. It's a poor comfort. No wonder everyone is in such distress. They have no hope. They're being told that one of their greatest enemies, an insatiable spirit, that devours them and and those that they love and brings them to ruin along the way, well, that's just a normal, natural thing, so get used to it. That's not true. You were not made to die. You were made to live. That life was lost through sin but gained again in Christ. And because of Him, death is defeated and death has lost its sting and death is swallowed up in victory. If I could make an application... You don't have to face death like the world around you does. You don't have to face death like those who have no hope. Because it's not the same thing for you in Christ. This is why Paul says, don't... I'll paraphrase him. He says, don't live and look at and and, and act like those who have no hope. Don't look at death like those who who only have this life and that's all it is, but believe this, believe in the resurrection of the dead, it's as sure as it can be, and believe it until death has lost its sting. If you're thinking about death and it's a terrifying thing, then you ought to spend more time thinking about the resurrection in Christ through faith until the sting becomes dull and blunt and powerless. Resurrection is coming for all of those who are in Christ. As sure as he was raised, so will we. Often we think of Jesus' resurrection happening, and then and then ours, it's separate and happening at some future time. That's not how the Bible teaches you to think about it. You see, a few verses earlier in 1 Corinthians, we read that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. What are the first fruits? It's not as you, you often hear this first fruits, that means the best of something. That's not what it is, it is what it says. It's the first of something. You see, when the harvest time came, not all fruit would be ready to pick at the same time. Some came early, most came a little later. And the fruit that appeared first was called the first fruits. And it was not better. That's not what it means. The first fruits were representative. They were indicative to the farmer of what the rest of the harvest would be like. And so when you see first fruits in the Bible, you ought to see this is representative of the harvest. And so, if Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, it means that his resurrection and our resurrection are not two separate events. They are the same events separated by moments. He is the first fruits, and we are the soon coming harvest. But it's one crop, one harvest. And because we are from the same harvest, His resurrection is representative to what will happen to everyone who has put their faith in Him. We will be raised as He is raised. It has already begun. What effect should this have on us? Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. A resurrection is coming. Don't mourn the loss of your body, but rejoice over the promise of the body to come. Don't be discouraged when the world causes you harm or causes you loss. Don't, don't fret it when, when age and distress rob you of health. Life in abundance is coming. I mean, if, if, if things around you kill you, all they've done is planted you in the ground so you can become what God has destined you to be. There's no loss. There's no shame. There's no disappointment. There's no regrets from following and losing and sacrificing for Christ. So be steadfast and immovable in faithfulness to the gospel and the work of the Lord. Whatever the cost might be. Maybe let me end this morning with an example just to tie this all together. What would you do And how would you live if you knew that somewhere in this world there was a fountain of youth? And if you could drink of it, not only would it make you young again, but it could treat every ailment, heal any disease, and cure every kind of pain or addiction. If such a fountain existed, not not in myth, but in reality, verified, would you seek it out? I mean, maybe you're content with an ache every now and then, but the older you got, the more obvious your fragility became, the, 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 the call in the back of your mind nagging you to go and find it. That would grow from a whisper to a, to a siren all the time, wouldn't it? Or maybe it wasn't you, but one of your children was sick, and you knew that there was a cure out there somewhere. Would you look for it then? Every time you saw your child, you wouldn't be able to think of anything else until it eventually overwhelmed you. It would consume your thoughts, your attention, your finances, all of it, just for one cup from this fountain. And if it broke your health, or if it bankrupt you to get there, what would it matter? One sip and you would have all the time and well-being and energy necessary to get back everything you lost and much more. No price would be too steep, no journey too demanding, no sacrifice too great, would it? You would give your health and gladly have your body broken in your pursuit of this fountain. And the reason why is simple. What is gained far outweighs everything that even could be lost. And maybe you think, I wish there was such a fountain. I wish there was such a spring here on earth. Well, the truth is, such a fountain does exist. Its location has been written down by the most reliable of sources and we were promised its truthfulness by the one who cannot lie. We read about it last week symbolically as a river of life and a tree of life and this morning we find that river and tree in Jesus Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. There's no need to search the furthest reaches of the jungles or the mountains or the seas. He is near at hand, offering eternal life, offering Himself to those who come to Him by faith. No price is too steep, no loss is too great to endure for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would give us faith to look beyond today and our present failings and fragility To be encouraged by the promises of life to come, of a resurrection of our bodies that will not perish or dishonor or be weak or be natural. Lord, that will be imperishable, immortal, honorable, glorying. Lord, they will be powerful and spiritual and they will not die nor even hint of death. Thank you, God. Who who could ever do this? And Lord, you graciously have poured out all of your promises and all of your mercy in Christ on us. I pray that you would encourage your saints this morning. Lord, our bodies will fail us, but you will never fail us. Your promises are always true. Help us to believe them, Lord. Amen.